morning. I'm, whether you are live stream or live, I'm Talbot Davis. I'm the pastor here. Glad, as always, that you've joined us t- today and especially glad you're continuing to connect with this series on how is it that we navigate touchy, difficult relationships. It is called Walking on Eggshells. And today's message is called Gaslighter. And if you have your Bible with you, all of the messages in this series have been about this relationship between Saul and David. And so they are drawn from an Old Testament book called 1 Samuel. And so if you have your Bible with you, I want to invite you to locate 1 Samuel chapter 19 and starting at verse 11. You won't just want to keep your finger there. If your Bible's not here or you don't, you're turning, tuning in live stream and you can't find your Bible at home, that's okay. The words will be up on the screen at just the right time like they always are. And this really underscores what is so important to us, which is that, that you all have your own encounter with Scripture whenever we are together. Because we in leadership at Good Shepherds, you may still be wrestling with this concept, but we like to be honest and and let you know kind of every time we gather what we in leadership believe about the Bible. And and, and it's this, that we, we believe that this library, and it's not a book, it is a library. We believe that this library has been inspired by God, that he breathed his life into its words. He put his truth onto its pages. The Bible really is inspired and eternal and true. And because we believe that here, when we're together, when we're tuning in live stream, we do something kind of different regarding the Bible, we lift it up. And if you've never been here before, you've never tuned in before, and you see phones in the air, and that's where a lot of people load their Bibles these days, you see Bible books in the air, you're, you're like, this is just kind of different. And you know what? We admit it. We acknowledge this is a little bit unusual for a church to do, but we have found that this is a moment of oddity that shapes our identity as a community. There were a collection of people joyfully surrendered to the authority of the word and eager for its power to be unleashed in our lives. Amen? And so before I say any more words, let's pray. So Father, thank you that you're good. Thank you the Holy Spirit is alive, every bit as much alive today as he was when he inspired 1 Samuel's author to write this incomparable story. Thank you the Holy Spirit is alive. And I need him and ask that you would fill me to the full with all the the truth and the joy and the power in the Holy Spirit and do the same for all who are within the sound of my voice. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this message, as I told you like two minutes ago, this message is called Gaslighter. And that concept and that phrase has really grown in influence over the last five years or so. But you may not be aware of the origin story behind the term gaslighter. And this is my great privilege to let you know what it is. Because it actually comes from the name of a play, like a theatrical play that was written in 1938. And then it was turned into a movie in 1944. And in this and the movie was called Gaslight. And in the movie, the husband, played by this actor named Boyer, 
they're, the, the central image in the whole movie is this little gas light in, in, the, in the kitchen that the husband and the wife share. And the husband keeps turning the gas light down. To, so it's barely a flicker. And the wife, who is played by Ingrid Bergman, she keeps noticing that the flame continues to diminish. And yet every time she mentions to her husband, you know, the gaslight keeps getting lower and lower, he convinces her that it's just her imagination. He convinces her that she's just making it up. And, and, and so the, the, this little gaslight becomes the central metaphor in the whole movie for this devious plot where husband convinces wife, played by Ingrid Bergman, that she's losing her grip on reality. And in, the, and in the climactic scene of the movie, Ingrid is talking to one of her friends, kind of like a confidant, and, 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 and she says, I'm losing my mind. And the confidant answers, no, you're being driven out of your mind. And that's gaslight. Not when you are going out of your mind, when you're being driven there. It's when in the course of relationships with parents, with children, with mates, with coworkers, with institutions, that a manipulator erases your reality. When an abuser makes you think you deserve it. When a bully makes you think you had it coming to you. When someone with power and with influence is able to make you question your own grip on reality and they make you feel like the things that you have seen with your senses, with your eyes, you've heard them with your ears, you smelled it with your nose, and they're able to make you question your own sense of reality. And some of you, some of you are being gaslit right now by people you love, by people who raised you, by people you are raising, by people you work with. And some of you, you're not being gaslit because you're gaslighting. Yeah, we know you're here as well. And so I just want to spend a few minutes talking about this, this kind of intriguing concept that continues to grow in influence. And I can tell by the looks on your faces that there are light bulbs going on all around. Oh yeah, I've been through this. I'm in the middle of this. I know what he's talking about. And, 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 and I do have to offer one correction though, be, because my origin story of the term gaslight only goes to 1944 or 1938. Actually, the real origin story of the concept of being able to ma manipulate someone to question their own sense of reality. When, it, when an unstable person is able to make someone else question their own stability, that the origin story of that actually goes back way, way before 1944. It goes back all the way to this ancient story about a thousand years before Jesus was born, so 3,000 years ago, between the two main characters that we have been diving into in this Walking on Eggshells series, Saul, who is the king of Israel, the first king of Israel, and David, his nemesis, 
who will be. And if you, if you haven't been with us over the last couple of weeks, I'm so glad that you're here today. But in the week one, we, we saw how Saul played head games with David and robbed him of his moment of glory. And then in week two, we, we saw how Saul weaponized confusion and made it so that David was actually living in a land of confusion. And, 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 then, and then today we get to take a look at the real origin story behind Gaslight. But, but before we actually open up the, the, the Bible to, to look at the story today, I, I have to give you a news alert. Y'all ready for a news alert? Uh, Thank you. A a news alert of what happened between the end of last week's story and the beginning of this week's story. And and what has happened in the story that we're not actually going to look at in Scripture is that David, the hunted one, the gaslit one, the pursued one, David has married a woman named Michael. Michael was a woman's name in in Hebrew. He's married a woman named Michael who is Saul's daughter. Now, why you would marry the daughter of a man who on more than one occasion has tried to kill you, I don't know. But that's what David did. And that's where we pick up the story in chapter 19 and verse 11 of 1 Samuel, chapter 19, verse 11. Saul sent men, this is to David's house, this is the house of his daughter and his son-in-law, to watch it and to kill him in the morning. But my, now this isn't a great way to welcome someone to the family. I've, when, when Julie and I first got married, my very New York father-in-law didn't always know what to make of totally Texan me, but I can promise you it never got this bad. And so, but Michael, David's wife warned him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. And so Michael protects her husband. And then she sets up this, this fascinating ruse, this interesting deception in verse, in verse uh, 13. Look at what it says. Then Michael took an idol and laid it on the bed, covering it with a garment and putting some goat's hair at the head. Now, this is interesting because Michael is the daughter of the king, the king of Israel, a a nation and a people who were founded on the concept of you shall not make for yourself a graven image. You shall have no idols before me. She should know better. And yet, not only does she have an idol just happen to be lying around the house, it's a life-size idol. And she puts his life, so what do you do with a life-size idol? I don't know, but she puts it in the bed and she put goat, goat's hair at the top to make anybody who's pursuing David think that it's David there asleep. It, at, at least the, the story serves to underscore the fact that idols, worship, worshiping statues, life-size or not, are so deceptive that the only thing they're good for is more deception. Pick up the story, verse 14. When Saul sent the men to capture David, Michael said, he's ill. He's, he's sick in the bed. Verse 15. And then Saul sent the men back to see David and told them, bring him up to me in his bed so that I may kill him. So the guy, the, the, Saul's soldiers go back that second time. Verse 16. But when the men entered, there was the idol in the bed and at the head was some goat's hair. So the ruse gets uncovered and that sets up this 
quick conversation between father and daughter, between Saul and Michael, that is among the most revealing conversations in this entire soap opera we're digging into. Look what Saul says in verse 17. Saul said to Michael, why did you deceive me like this and send my enemy away so that he escaped? And Michael told him, he said to me, let me get away. Why should I kill you? And, and so interesting what, what Saul does. He, he, he puts his daughter to the loyalty test. Do you notice that? Who are you going to choose, honey, me or him, your daddy or your husband? And, and I don't know about you, but those kind of loyalty tests are so common. It makes me think of the, the father-in-law who's kind of meddling in a, in a marriage and not, not murderously, but just kind of annoyingly. Can we agree there's a big gap between annoyingly and murderously? And, and, and daughter finally has to say to her dad, don't make me choose, dad, because you're not going to like the result. <laughs> it's a loyalty test. And, and those kind of loyalty tests are not only in families. Man, I've, 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 I've lived through them in church where, where people will say, me or her? You, you, you either fire her or I'm leaving the church. You either choose me over him or I'm leaving the church. And, and once I realized kind of the, the, the tests to which I was being subjected, I stopped taking them. And, and maybe you've lived through a similar kind of loyalty test. And if you have, that's just a prelude really to being sort of gas lit. Notice one other thing about Saul's speech to Micah. Michael, what does he say? Why did you deceive me like this and send my enemy? Notice he doesn't even say David's name and he makes the whole drama all about himself. And no doubt some of you know people like this who they, they have a knack for making any kind of crisis, any kind of chaos. Oh, well, what about me? And if that is the first reaction of someone in your life to take something that doesn't have anything to do with them and make it about them, whew, you're, you're probably getting ready to be gaslit. Let's see what happens next in verse 18. Story takes an interesting turn. When David had fled, and it's so interesting throughout 1 Samuel that kind of the, the main verb about David is that he's always in flight. He's fleeing from Saul. He's fleeing for his safety. When David had fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel. And Sam, the book of 1 Samuel is named after Samuel. Obviously, we don't think he was the author, but he nevertheless, he is David's mentor, David's guide. He went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And then he and Samuel went to Naoth and stayed there. Naoth is a place out in the wilderness in Israel. And it was really more like a camp than a village. And it's what Samuel has launched there in this place called Naoth is really what I would call an Old Testament Pentecostal camp meeting, complete with people praying in tongues and falling out and having all kinds of ecstatic, exuberant worship and losing sense of time and lo losing sense of scale. Because look what happens in verses 19 through 21 when Saul sends more soldiers to find David. Look, look at what happens. Word came to Saul, David is in Naoth at Ramah. Verse 20, so he sent men to capture him, soldiers. 
But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying, this is that Old Testament Pentecostal camp meeting, with Samuel standing there as the leader, the Spirit of God came on Saul's men, and they also prophesied. Saul was told about it. And he sent more men, and they prophesied too. Saul sent men a third time, and they also prophesied. So three times, these guys get distracted from their main mission, which is killing David, and into their secondary mission, which is worshiping God. So, so they have this kind of ecstatic, exuberant, unintelligible kind of worship. There's, the Holy Spirit is all over the place. <laughs> and, they, and Saul, because he can't get no satisfaction from his soldiers, they, they, they keep stop being soldiers and they turn into preachers. And Saul decides he needs to get in on the act. And look what happens when Saul does. Verses 23 and 24, where it says this. So Saul went to Naoth at Ramah. Saul goes himself to the Old Testament Pentecostal camp meeting. But the Spirit of God came even on him, and he walked along prophesying until he came to Naoth. So he's walking along, kind of exuberant in his praise of God, but people are not paying attention to him. That's why he says he's walking along. He doesn't have a, a crowd around him, so he's kind of preaching. No one's paying attention. Verse 24, he stripped off his garments... And he too prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay naked all that day and all that night. And this is why people say, is Saul also among the prophets? Now, come on. I've taken some preaching courses in my life. I've taught some preaching courses in my life. But I can tell you that in all that time of taking and teaching about preaching, never once, not once, not a single time has anybody ever said, it's never come out of my mouth or into my ears. It has never been said, if they're not paying attention to you, just preach naked. That's just not in the textbook. And yet somehow Saul is like, you all are paying attention to me. I'll show you, ignore this. And there he goes. And so there Saul is, and he's clearly lost his grip on, on reality. He's clearly out of his mind, and the proof is that he's out of his clothes. They're, they're, we're supposed to notice the absurdity. We're supposed to notice the insanity of it all, and which makes what happens next even that much greater because this author of 1 Samuel, he's such a genius. He's so inspired. He's so skillful. And remember, or, or learn if you never knew it to begin with, that chapters and verses were added much later. That the author of 1 Samuel, or the author of any biblical book, did not write it with chapters and verses. They just wrote it. And so in the original, in 1 Samuel, there is no break between the end of chapter 19 and the beginning of chapter 20. And so the author just lays this out with such, to such genius effect because the last thing, thing that we see about Saul is that he's naked in front of, babbling on incoherently in front of Saul. And then the very next scene, without even catching a breath, look what happens in chapter 20, verse 1. Then David fled, there's that word again. David fled from Naoth at Ramah and went to Jonathan and then asked, what have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to kill me? Oh my gosh. 
Do, do you see the absurdity? Do you, do, do you see the contrast? That in one scene, there's naked, babbling, incoherent, obviously out of his mind, Saul. And in the very next scene, there's David thinking it's all his fault. David has created some kind of alternate reality where Saul is the victim and he's the villain. We're supposed to notice the absurdity. We're supposed to see the contrast. We're supposed to be aware enough to understand, oh my gosh, Saul is the gas lighter and David is being gas lit all to the point that, that we see this naked, incoherent, babbling king at the feet of sage, wise Samuel and David is so confused. His own mind has been so twisted by Saul's manipulation that he thinks it's his fault. Saul's irresponsibility has become David's responsibility. What, what, what a marvelous story, impeccably told. And that whole dynamic, gas lighter, gas lit, villain, making you think he's victim. That continues to play out. In fact, I assume it's playing out on people tuning in on live stream and people who are here live. Someone here, someone here has a husband who cheats and he's been able to convince you that it's really your fault that if you just took a little bit better care of yourself or you were just a little bit more exciting, he wouldn't wander. And someone else here, you're in the opposite role. You have a wife and she steps out on you and you've come to accept her accusation that if you were just man enough, she wouldn't. And someone else here, you're a victim of domestic violence. And your abuser has been able to convince you of that line, well, he does hit me, but if I didn't egg him on, maybe he wouldn't. And someone else here was raised by an alcoholic. And that one time, when that alcoholic parent had that moment of sobriety, that one time you vented some anger to them and they were able to say to you, why honey, I don't know what's your problem. I'm not drunk. And someone at work, you, you've, been, you've been edged out and someone in, in your workplace has lined up all kind of forces against you and and you've come to believe, yeah, it really is all my fault. They're the gaslighter and you've been gaslit. And my gosh, do we not see this as a culture? I don't know how much you know about this. But since gaslighters are good at, at erasing reality, making us question the reality that we see with our own senses... Well, with our own senses, it's pretty easy to tell who is a boy and who is a girl. And who is a man and who, can I have an amen for that? We can tell. And yet, what does our culture have us doing? I don't know if you know this. You're supposed to give your preferred pronouns. Like people don't know exactly who you are. And so many people buy into the lunacy 
That's what gaslighting is. And so many of us are victims of it in, in, in the small scale. And as a culture, we'll fall and pray to it on the larger scale. And some of you are the bulliers and others of you are the bullied. And some of you, some of you, have, have, you, you, you know everything I'm saying is true. But you just have decided to sacrifice what you know for what you want. And what you want is for this relationship somehow, however tenuous it is, you want this relationship to preserve and, and, and to continue. Or you want the status quo, even if the status quo is miserable, why do you want that status quo? And, and, and so since this is the reality that David was living into, and this is the reality that so many of us are, are living into, where, where we will accept the denial of our reality just to preserve this relationship. Here's what I want you to know. That if you have to sacrifice reality to preserve the relationship, don't. That's it. If you are on the receiving end of some gaslighting and you are being asked continually, continually to to accept the blame for the infidelity that someone else is committing. To accept the responsibility for the abuse that someone else is perpetrating. And you're being asked to do that? Don't. If relationship comes at the expense of reality, it weren't much of a relationship to begin with. Some of you, you may be in one of these kind of poisonous, dangerous relationships and, and it may well end out. And, and this, I'm talking about whether this is a marriage or whether it's a romance or whether it's with your children or with, with your parents or at work or even church. It, it may work out that, that you're able to persevere through it and the status quo changes. And Hallelujah. But the thing that's not acceptable is, is the status quo. And then for others of you, if, if even this talk sort of raises something up in you, I, I, I cannot keep sacrificing the reality I know to be true just to preserve this relationship. Just know that something in that connection was probably killing you to begin with. It's interesting how this works, even in, in, in my world and kind of the church world, larger, not larger than this congregation world. I have been um, called kind of in, not, not here, not at Good Shepherd, because y'all are, are so nice. You actually are like pretty awesome. And, but I have been called extreme in church circles. And I've been called extreme because I, I dare to believe what the church has always believed about relationships and intimacy and marriage that God's designed for sex is celibacy and singleness and faithfulness in marriage between a man and a woman. And, and I, I believe that. Well, I have been called extreme by so many other people in the Methodist tribe who either want to expand that definition to include uh, couples cohabitating 
or to include same-sex relationships or to include what they now call polyamory, which is having more than one intimate partner at a time. And, and they've been like, hey, times are changing. Love is love is love. Why can't you be filled with more love? Why don't you adapt the teaching? And I was called extreme enough to the point that I, I actually began to question my own beliefs. And, and I was like, gosh, if all these other cool people are, are kind of editing the gospel and changing the Bible, maybe I just need to get with the program. And, and, then, and then in this moment of clarity, it happened because I said it out loud. Everything came into focus. Oh, if I believe what the church around the globe has always believed and what the Bible is unanimous in teaching, by definition, I'm not extreme. Maybe the ones who are extreme are the ones who would redefine what Jesus actually reinforced. And by saying that out loud, I was, whoo, I'm not going to be gaslit anymore into questioning my own sanity and my own stand with what the global church has always taught and always believed. If you have to sacrifice reality to preserve relationship, don't. And so I want to give you just a couple real practical hints. And you, you feel free to write these down. Just what, what, what do you do if you think you're in the, in, in the middle? Number one, say it out loud. Say it out loud. If, you are, if your reality is being questioned, say it out loud. Gaslighters always fail the say it out loud test. I'm getting abused, but I egg him on. Uh, no. She cheats, but I deserve it. Nope. My 38-year-old kid is still living at home, but I'm a bad parent because I didn't get him a new car. I almost had a word before no, okay? <laughs> no. Say it out loud. Second, journal it. Jot down what it is you're experiencing, what it is you're being asked to accept. Years ago, my wife, Julie, she had a gaslighting boss and she was meticulous in jotting down all the lies and all the alternate realities that he was asking her to accept. And so she had a comprehensive record of everything that had gone on. Journal it. And third, find a confidant. Say it out loud. Journal it down. Find a confidant. Your confidant might, might be a, a counselor. It might be a pastor. It might be a friend. It might even be a life group. One of my one of my own favorite moments in sort of pastoral work was many years ago when a, an engaged young woman came in and, and she asked me, she, she really wanted to process with me if she should continue with the engagement and proceed with the marriage. And, and as she was talking to me about it, I, I just said, if you're asking the question, you already know the answer. She knew the answer. She just needed someone to say it out loud for her relationship ended alternate reality escaped a life of health embraced so yeah 
if you have to sacrifice what you know is true for some fantasy that you want, don't. If you have to sacrifice reality to preserve relationship, it wasn't really a relationship to begin with. And others of you, in the sound of my voice, gaslighters, we're on to you. There's a whole collection of people within the sound of my voice whose awareness has been raised and we are on to you. So stop it. Stop the inventing reality. Stop the, well, what about me? Stop the loyalty tests. Stop it. Before you find yourself out of your mind and maybe out of your clothes, babbling on incoherently at the feet of a sage. Just stop it. If you have to sacrifice reality to preserve relationship by the grace and the power of the risen Jesus, don't. Let's pray. So Father, thank you for this experience you've given us of living into difficult truths. I ask that the result of this would be incredible courage and freedom and spirit-filled, healthy relationships. We cannot do this on our own. We ask that you do it through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.